0: Let's pray together to our God. Our Lord, we praise you for the ability to stand before you today. It is by your faithful love that we are able to do so. You have given us faith. You have given us the ability to remain faithful to you in the midst of many trials. When we struggle to see you, we have your word to give us clear-eyed wisdom and revelation of who you are and what you are doing in this world. When we grow weary, we have a church family who is eager to provide encouragement and support so we can endure in believing loyalty. And when our identity is in doubt, we are reminded that we have been marked by the Holy Spirit, sent to us by your Son, and now we are named as your children. Lord, forgive us when we do not live up to this calling. We still have weaknesses and leftover desires, Bring to our minds now the way each of us needs to repent, the way each of us needs to plead for your mercy, the way each of us needs to grow in our faithfulness, the way each of us needs to put away the dying things of the world so we can live whole in you. Help us to surrender to you through confessing these sins to you and to one another. Lord, we sometimes forget that we are in a war, We can become lax in preparing ourselves for the battle we face every day when the world tries to wedge itself between us and you. Give us urgency each day to stand against the schemes of the enemy. Help us as we fill our minds with truth so that we would not be deceived. We hunger and thirst for your righteousness so that we would be protected from the accusations of the enemy and live with a clear conscience with you. Help us as we are equipped each day with prayer and your word so we are able to boldly proclaim your truth to everyone around us. We pray for our sister churches who are engaged in this same battle. We pray for the Well Church in Portland and their pastor, C.J. Coffey. Let their service this morning produce fruit in the life of that congregation that spills over into the community in a way that proclaims that they belong to you and for Saving Grace Church and their pastor, Brian Winchester. We pray for protection from the spiritual forces that want to remove the claim that you have on those people. We ask that their commitment to you would be strengthened through their gathering this morning. We ask, Lord, that you would open our eyes and our ears this morning as we consider your word. Soften our hearts so that we will not resist the sanctifying and strengthening nature of the text today. Give our brother Hans your words so that we would be transformed and renewed in our minds and our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Ray. Can have a seat?
1: This morning we find ourselves in Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. As always, I am thankful to be part of a church that takes seriously the Word of God and studying the Word of God, and we enjoy in this church to delve in deep, to understand what the Word is saying to us, and so this morning is no different, so I hope you are ready and prepared to study the Word of God and apply it to your lives. Well, in our world of electronic forgeries and falsified news, misleading social media and identity theft it is more difficult than ever to know what is genuine. Because of this, even with all our technological advances, I find it very interesting that many things still have to be completed in the old school way in order to state they're genuine. Things like getting a notary public to verify and validate important documents for things like loans and adjustments, or excuse me, adoptions. When Kelly and I were going through an overseas adoption prior to our sons being born, I was amazed at how many things needed a notary public. And specifically, I was amazed at the necessity of the seal that they used and the notary seal embosser. Even in our technology-obsessed world, our own government and the government of the foreign country from whom we were adopting wanted to see a seal, a mark of authenticity that the content to which these documents attested was genuine and truthful. Wouldn't it be great if there was a similar seal that could attest to who is a genuine Christian? Ask 20 different self-styled Christians what is a Christian or what is the church, and I fear that you will get 20 different answers. But the Reformed tradition gives us an idea that the church, so-called, is actually made up of both the visible And invisible church. The visible church being those who self-identify as Christians and who may even be actively involved in Christian duties, such as church attendance and service. What you see before you is the visible church. But the invisible church is those who are actually the Lord's, actually converted and regenerate, and are only truly known by the Lord himself. So much discussion and debate has come down through the centuries, attempting to posit what makes a Christian genuine. What are the marks of a true Christian? The Catholic Church has their ideas. The Protestant Church does as well. Luther had his marks of a true Christian. Calvin had his marks of a true Christian. We have our marks, the Marx family, like Nick. (laughs) And we as a church even rely upon a group called Nine Marks to help us know what it is to walk in health as a church. All of these are trying to decide what marks or what signifies a Christian as genuine. Much like the idea of what marks a document as genuinely approved by a notary public. And our text this morning will point to those that are genuine Christians. Purchased by the blood of the Lamb and secured by His seal. And what an encouragement this will be for us, for all true Christians who must walk through the suffering of this life. This morning, what we'll see is that God's covenant people are secure in the mark of the Lamb. God's covenant people are secure in the mark of the Lamb. Now, the context and background for these eight verses is the seven seal judgments that have been playing out in chapter six, which roll out of the authority of the Lamb that was slain and yet standing in chapters 4 and 5. And if you haven't heard those sermons dealing with those sections, I would highly recommend you go back and listen. It's very important, dear friends, as we go through Revelation, that you realize that each part builds upon the other parts. And so if you haven't attended or heard, it would be good for you to go back and re-listen, because it will continue to build, and you'll be lost if you don't get the previous sermons. But there in chapters four and five, the lamb was established as the sovereign king over the universe because of his atoning work on the cross on behalf of his creation. And because of that authority that he has been given by the ancient of days, he can now unleash and has been a limited judgment upon unbelieving, rebellious people upon an unbelieving and rebellious world that will culminate in his final judgment that has yet to occur. And so we stated that these seals have actually been occurring since the cross, since the enthronement of Christ. And that judgment is shown through the symbolic breaking of the seals on the scroll in chapter 6. Seals 1 through 4 spoke of four warrior spirits sent to bring pre-judgment wrath upon the world, but only at the Lamb's discretion holding them back so as not to destroy the entire world. And seal five was broken, and we saw the martyrs of Christian saints killed for their faith, crying out to the Lamb, saying, How long, O Lord, before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? The Lamb responded with a statement of, The number of their fellow servants should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Seal 6 was then broken, which signified and symbolized the final judgment of God on all creation that is yet to come. But rather than finding repentance on the earth, the Lamb finds the idolatrous nations still relying upon creation rather than the Creator as its Savior. Rather than repent, the world cries out for the rocks to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. The judgment and wrath will be found complete in chapter 8, verse 1. There we will see... It will say, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. All of the cosmos will come to a screeching halt in reverent silence as it witnesses the fullness of God's completed work of righteous judgment and righteous redemption. Now, this is a heavy revelation for John to behold and for us to hear, one that leaves us full of awe at the awe judgment of Christ. So much so that the hearers of revelation are meant to be left with the extreme weight of the last verse of chapter six. For there it says, for the great day of the wrath of the Lamb and the ancient of days has come. Who can stand? And so we're left hanging as we leave chapter six with two questions in mind. One, from the righteous martyrs. When will the suffering end, they ask? When will you, O God, have vengeance? And how many more have to die before you will? And secondly, from the rebellious, idolatrous earth dwellers, who can even stand, they ask, in the midst of this wrath? And the answer comes in the form of chapter 7, the next vision that we'll look at this morning, a vision that can rightly be called an interlude or a parenthesis, if you will. A bracketed pause where Jesus gives John the answer to these two questions. And his answer should reassure the church that no matter the suffering or wrath inflicted upon a rebellious world, his people, his covenant people are secure in his eternal and sovereign love. God's covenant people are secure in the mark of the Lamb. Well, let's read our text from chapter 7 now and begin with a bit of context starting back in chapter 6-7 to give us a taste of the first four seals and look at the last few as we move on into our section from this, for this morning, chapter 7, verses 1-8. through eight. Starting in 6-7, it says, When the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse and its rider... 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. In verse one of chapter seven, we are reminded of all that we have seen in chapter six, for there we see the complete power of God's judgment. The complete power of God's judgment. As we discussed a few weeks ago, our Western linear style of thought takes the first two words of this section, after this, and tries to turn them into a chronology of end-time events that will happen in the future. But friends, that is not how the Greek nor Hebrew first-century Christians would have written nor interpreted it. The after this must be attached to, I saw which means that the order given is simply the order of the visions that John was given, not the order of when the actual events that these visions symbolize will occur. In fact, 7, 1 through 8, is most likely an occurrence that is supposed to take place prior to any of the seals being broken. For we see that it is to be done before any of the earth is harmed. There is even suggestion here, and I actually agree with this, that this potentially, this event that we are looking at in 7, 1 through 8, actually is ancient. It's before even creation, since the beginning of time. When the names were written in the book of life at the foundations of the earth. Regardless, it is before the seals of chapter six, but let's unpack it a bit further. We see four angels and four corners of the earth and four winds of the earth. Four corners of the earth is the easiest to comprehend in our Western modern minds. We know that the earth is not square. It's not a flat plane, and yet we still use the idea of the four cardinal directions of north, south, east, and west. This idiomatic phrase signifies a complete power of the winds, that they would affect the whole earth. There is no part of God's creation that is hidden from his hand. This imagery of God's complete power was utilized all throughout the Old Testament, and it's meant to be utilized here. It was used by the prophets to speak of God's complete power to bring life or death, and he uses the image of the winds to do so. Compare a few verses from the Old Testament from prophetic and apocalyptic verses such as these. First, you can jot down Jeremiah 49, 35 through 36. This is an image of the winds, symbolizing the power of God bringing death. Thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I will break the bow of Elam, the mainstay of their might, and I will bring upon Elam the four winds from the four quarters of heaven, and I will scatter them all to those winds, and there shall be no nation to which those driven out of Elam shall not come. It's meant to speak of the complete judgment of God. And second, from a very symbolic passage, that prophesies God's restorative power over his people Israel in Ezekiel 37, 9 through 10. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. One speaks of God's breath as life-giving, the other as bringing judgment and death, and both are symbolized using this idea of the four winds from the four corners of the earth and of heaven, God's complete power in judgment. But even more to the point is the reminder that the four horsemen of chapter six, we just read the last one, but the four horsemen of chapter 6 are very much connected to this same idea of the four warriors that come from the four winds in horse-drawn chariots that we've looked at previously in Zechariah 6. You'll recall this from previous sermons. Zechariah 6, 1-5, Again I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. And I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. I give these to you to see the connection in symbolism. These horsemen here are going out to the four winds of heaven to act as God's agents of judgment. The verse says they will go out to patrol the earth. So similar to what we have before us in Revelation 7, isn't it? These four horsemen in Revelation 6 that continues into 7 were released by the divine command of the sovereign lamb upon the throne to bring partial judgment upon the earth against the rebellious creation and humanity led by rebellious angelic spiritual beings. With this understanding, we can again read 7.1. It says, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. The idea is holding back the movement of God in judgment. We realize that these four angels are holding back the four winds from the four corners because once they let them loose, God's judgment will pour out. It is the same vision as Revelation 6, 1 through 8, just from a different vantage point. And so we're beginning to see that these four winds are a recapitulated view of the four horsemen. Same image, different different vantage vantage point. point. And in in this first verse, Jesus carries us back back to a place place before before the the first seals have have been broken and and his his limited judgment has been released, before the earth or sea or vegetation or humanity will be harmed in judgment. God wants to secure here those that are his own with his own seal of authority and give them a seal, a security of eternal rest. And this will answer the two questions of chapter six that were posed. How many have to die before the end comes and who can stand in the midst of the wrath of the lamb? The answer is given by Jesus by giving us this parenthetical interlude of chapter seven. These are the ones that can stand. These are the ones that will die in Christ. And so before any of the trials of chapter 6 roll out, God wants to seal those who are his from falling away and turning from him when suffering or trial come. And for any of us that are going through trial or have been through trial, we recognize the fear that that brings. In doing so, Jesus will fulfill the promise he made even in Revelation 3 as he spoke to the first century church through the local church at Philadelphia when he said this in Revelation 3.10, Because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Friends, we exist in trials to be tried And Jesus, by his Holy Spirit and the seal he has given us, he keeps us secure in him in the midst of those trials. Now, this seal will not be an earthly, physical protection, a protection of comfort. But it's a sealing in their faith and a sealing of their covenant with him, even in the midst of the complete power of his judgment. And the lamb desires to secure and seal his own so that they might endure in covenant unity with him. And this is where we next see the complete security of the seal of the lamb. The complete security of the seal of the lamb. Let's read verses two through four. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising sun, with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Another angelic emissary steps forth on behalf of the God who was dead, but is living and who alone can bring eternal life. He commands the other angels who are holding back the trials to be unleashed. He says to them, do not bring harm until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Now, we are not immediately given the shape or image or the wording of what is on this seal. But we are later told in Revelation 14, which we will go into depth on later, we are told this, this statement in Revelation 14.1, Then I looked and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. The seal that is given is the name of the Ancient of Days and the Lamb. But what is this trying to communicate to us? Well, it's even far more amazing when we think through the Old Testament imagery that sits behind this idea. And man, I could give you an hour on just this piece, but in the interest of time, let's look at just a few. It killed me to cut all of this out, but we're going to look at just a few. First is the idea of the Passover. You see, the last time the people of God bore the mark of the lamb, you remember the story, The people of God were enslaved in Egypt, and God was breaking them free through the use of plagues that were direct attacks on the idols of Egypt. And there in the last plague, the Israelites were to use the blood of the Passover lamb to mark their homes in the blood of the lamb so that the spirit of death passed over them. The mark of the lamb was a seal of protection. Now, this idea of protection is built further in a vision in the book of Ezekiel. Would you turn there with me in the Old Testament to Ezekiel chapter 9? Go to Ezekiel chapter 9. If you reach the book of Daniel, you've gone too far. Ezekiel chapter 9. You can read the fullness of this chapter on your own this week, but Judah is overcome with idolatry. And God's physical, tangible Shekinah glory is about to leave the temple, about to leave the throne of the Ark of the Covenant, and to leave the people of God. And God gives Ezekiel a vision of his wrath. He gives him a vision of executioners coming forward to slaughter the idolaters of Jerusalem. But before they do, he commands an angelic being to go throughout the city and put a mark on the forehead of God's true people the people that abhor idolatry and are allegiant to Yahweh alone. And it will be this mark that protects them from the coming judgment. Take a look there at chapter 9, verse 4. And the Lord said to him, Pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. Notice the inference of their allegiance and their hatred of idolatry their purity. And to the others, he said in my hearing, pass through the city after him and strike. Your eye shall not spare and you shall show no pity. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch no one on whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary. In other words, start with the household of God. Now, these biblical themes should be kept in mind as we look at the idea of the seal being employed in security of these 144,000 back in Revelation. Go back there with me to Revelation, Revelation 7. But not only the context of the Old Testament, let's also think in the context of what it meant in the first century to those reading it. In that day and prior, the idea of a sign, a seal or a mark Placed upon a forehead was intended to mark a person as the property of another. This was used in marking people as slaves of a slave owner and or as followers or priests of a certain deity. And notice that the angel declared that it is the bondservants or servants of God that are to be sealed. These people are the Lord's. He is their master. They are his servants. Now, enthroned kings in the ancient Near East, much like the Lamb of chapter 5, would use a signet ring, like what you see on the screen, and melted wax to make their official mark upon documents of importance to seal them and secure their contents for the recipient. This is the picture of chapter 6, a scroll with seals on it. This same thing would be used to mark the foreheads of those that are the servants of God. The seal that the angel has brought is the mark of the sovereign living God, the Lamb. It is actually the name of the Lamb and the name of the Ancient of Days. And he's coming from the east, from the direction of, the, of Jerusalem to John, who's getting the vision in Turkey. And like the official mark of Yahweh on the seals of the plain of, uh, plan of time in chapter 6, that is the scroll, this angel is to mark the people of God so that they might be protected Just like the seal used by Near East kings to authenticate and protect official documents, these sealed servants of God are protected and cannot be broken and cannot be unsealed except at the divine command of the one whose seal they bear. No one is able to tear them out of his hand. His protection of his people is complete because it marks... It bears the mark of the king. But does it protect physically from harm? Or is it something else? Well, we know that it can't mean physical protection because the saints in chapter two and three are told that they will suffer and possibly be martyred. Chapter six says that there will be more martyrs. You see, friends, Christ never promised comfort. He promised comforting by his Holy Spirit in the midst of trial but Christ never promised his followers, excuse me, physical protection. In fact, Jesus promised the exact opposite. To be a Christian is to look death in the face. Now we see this even in the martyrs under the altar of chapter six crying out. So what must it mean? Well, it means that they are sealed in protection of covenant with the King. They are sealed in protection of covenant with the king. They are sealed in their citizenship in the kingdom of the lamb. And this is validated more as we read on further in Revelation and come across a different kingdom, a second kingdom with a second supposed king, who's false, who also has a mark. You might be more familiar with this mark. The mark of the one that is called the beast. Now, we won't get into a ton of detail on this symbolic character yet, except to say that this is the character in Revelation who is known to symbolize the enemy of the lamb. He is the anti-lamb, the anti-lamb, because he is the beast. And in chapter 13, we will see that the beast deceives the earth dwellers. Those who from chapter 6 are calling for creation to hide them from the creator in their idolatry, these are the earth dwellers. And he deceives them into worshiping him in his image. And with that image, he likewise marks his adherents. Much the same as the lamb marks his own. And friends, I am here to tell you, most likely it is not a microchip. To think so is to lose what Revelation is telling you. It could be, but I doubt it. From this mark of the beast, it states in Revelation 13 what will happen. Causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. Do you see how it is the contrast to the mark of the lamb? Isn't it interesting how crazy people get about the mark of the beast? But the focus of Revelation is the mark of the lamb. That's what Christians pay attention to. They don't worry about the mark of the beast, they focus on the mark of the lamb. To put it simply, then, both of these marks do the same thing. And this is the imagery that is given. It is not meant to tell us of some futuristic conspiracy theory. It is meant to tell us that these marks do the same thing they mark one as a citizen submitted to a king, as a worshiper submitted to a god, and as a participant in a system. The difference, however, is that the mark given by the beast cannot protect. It will instead lead to destruction at the final judgment of the lamb. And this mark, contrary to the mark of the lamb, helps us to understand what is happening with the mark of the lamb itself. Those marked in chapter seven are citizens submitted to the lamb who sits on the throne. They are worshipers of the lamb. And they are participants in his rule of law, his system of governance, and his eternal economy. And no one and no thing will cause that to end. God has sealed these individuals with his covenantal promise, and no one and no thing will break it. They can rest secure, no matter what comes, in the knowledge that they are united in covenant with the Lamb no matter the suffering that entices them to give up their trust in Christ, no matter the trials that squeeze their faith, and no matter the lying ideologies that are presented to them in the world, these sealed followers of Christ, the followers of the Lamb, will stay firmly planted in the eternal covenant and rest of Jesus. So who are these blessed individuals? Well, you may have already figured it out. They are the complete, secure, redeemed people of God prepared for war. The complete, secure, redeemed people of God prepared for war. In verses 4 through 8, I will not read it again, but it's very obvious. It catalogs the 144,000 as 12 tribes with 12,000 people from each. Now you might think to yourself as you read through them, Hans, this is simple, obviously. Obviously we need to read this literally as 144,000 ethnically Jewish people protected by God. And if you think that, you are in the company of many who view this group as just that. That is one way to interpret this passage. Or you might think like some cults, like the Jehovah's Witnesses, that this is a limitation on the number of those who are saved. In heaven it will be us 144,000 and no more. But remember friends, this book is written in an apocalyptic genre. And so I would submit to you that both of these views are incorrect. Have any of the numbers been literal thus far? No. And many will read Revelation and say that we should read it literally, unless it is absolutely obvious that it is figurative or symbolic. But that is a misunderstanding of how to read Scripture, especially how to read Scripture in the context of a literary genre. Apocalyptic literature requires us to read it figuratively, unless specifically stated otherwise. But let's ask the question, why wouldn't it be a special group of ethnic Jews? Well, the answer is quite simple. Friends, God is no longer interested in covenanting based on ethnic distinction. Amen. Remember what happened in the atoning death and resurrection of Jesus? Salvation was made available to the Gentiles. Amen. And this is what it says in Ephesians two thirteen through 16. Read this very carefully. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's the Gentiles. For he himself is our peace who has made us both Jew and Gentile one and has broken down in his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law. When you abolish something, do you ever rebuild it by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. This isn't a removal of the Jews. This is taking the Jews and the Gentiles to create one new family in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Friends, why would God send his son to bring redemption to Jew and Gentile alike, working through the cross and resurrection to tear down the dividing wall of hostility, making one new people, just in order in the future to resurrect that wall again to make some point, about the end times. He wouldn't, he simply would not. He has torn down the wall once and for all. We've already seen in Revelation, Jesus uses the distinction of Jew, but he uses it in a different way. He talks about true Jews and fake Jews to intimate that only those who follow his Messiah, regardless of their ethnic background, are true Jews. Remember Revelation 2.9 and 3.9? Revelation 2.9, when he spoke to the church, Jesus said, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Revelation 3.9, behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. The implication here is that the true Jew, regardless of ethnic background, is one who is in Christ. Friends, there is no such thing as a messianic Christian and a just normal Christian. There are only Christians. Amen. It doesn't matter your ethnic background. Amen. A false Jew is one who is actually part of the assembly of the adversary of God, one who denies Christ. And also the designation supposedly reserved for ethnic Israel in the book of Exodus, that they would be a kingdom of priests, has been used twice in Revelation to speak of those who are in Christ, the church. And friends, the church doesn't replace Israel. It is the fullness of Israel. Israel was the type. The church is the anti-type. Israel was looking forward to the church, made up of both Jew and Gentile. Now, further still, recognize that what we get hung up on is the ethnic status, Jew, Gentile, Israelite, non-Israelite. But what we need to think in terms of is covenant community. With the advent and enthronement of Jesus, the covenant community is now made up of both Jew and Gentile. This wasn't God giving up on his promises to Israel. It was him fulfilling them. Do you recall his promise to the original father of Israel, Abraham? What was his last promise? In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so wording used for specifically ethnic Jews in the Old Testament is used throughout the New Testament to speak of the church. The covenant community of the church made up of both ethnically Jew and Gentile become the true Jews. Look at Romans 2, 28 through 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Not only is the church the true Jews in the New Testament, the church is also the true circumcision. You see it here, you see it in Philippians 3.3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. The church is the true Jews in the New Testament. The church is the true circumcision in the New Testament. And this same idea is used again by Paul in describing the church as the Israel of God. Galatians 6, 15 through 16, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. God, he's referring to the church there. In the opening greetings of the letters of James and 1 Peter, which you can read on your own this week, the church is referred to as the 12 tribes who are elect exiles and dispersed as Israel was in their exile. So friends, if James calls the church, made up of ethnically Jew and Gentile, the 12 tribes, how should that assist us in looking at the 12 tribes before us in Revelation 7? It should assist us in looking at them as the complete, secure, redeemed people of God. So Hans, why then would he break it down into 12 tribes with 12,000 in each and he'd give the names of tribal heads? Well, friends, the numbers speak to the same idea, that this is the fullness of the church, both Jew and Gentile. In biblical numerology, 12 is the number of governmental completion. Thus, 12 tribal heads of Israel and 12 apostles as the heads of the new covenant Israel. We will see later in Revelation that the new Jerusalem will have memorial to both the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles. You guys ready for a little math? You ready? Are you listening still? 12 times 12 is... 144, 1,000 is a number that is intended to speak of the fullness of quantity or immensity. And so 144,000 is a symbolic number that speaks to the immensity and the fullness of quantity of those who are old and new covenant believers in Yahweh. This is the complete and true Israel of God's saved, redeemed covenant people made up of both Jew and Gentile. This is what Paul means in his letter to the Romans when he says, all Israel will be saved. Friends, what you have before you in Revelation 7 is a picture, symbolically, of the complete covenant people of God, secured in covenant relationship with him, made up of Jew and Gentile Old Testament and New Testament saints, The Lord knows those who are his. And this makes sense as we look at Revelation 7. For example, Revelation 7, 1 through 8, is the only place in all of Revelation that those who are referred to as God's servants are sealed. There is no other place. So if this is only referring to ethnic Jews, then Gentiles are out of luck because they are never sealed. It's the only place. The other points at which... The 144,000 are mentioned, are, are giving, giving reference, reference to, to this.
0: Also, when this phrase, servants of God, God is used three other times, times in Revelation, it, it always
1: refers to the complete number of his, his redeemed people. people. And just as the mark of the beast is used throughout Revelation for the complete number of the rebelling, idolatrous earth dwellers, the flip side, the mark of the Lamb, the seal of the Lamb, is used for the complete number of all believing heaven dwellers. And that is what we will see in the next section of chapter 7, is the heaven dwellers that we'll see next week. Here in 7, 1 through 8, there is a figurative picture of all of God's redeemed covenant people sealed and protected while enduring suffering on earth. Verses 9 through 17 are these same people in the midst of heavenly worship before the throne. Chapter 7 is Jesus giving John a view of the same people from two different perspectives. And from these two different perspectives, our two questions from chapter six are answered. How many martyrs have to die before Jesus is finished? The answer, Revelation seven tells us that Jesus knows, and he has them identified and secure. So trust in him. And who can stand in the midst of God's judgment? Jesus knows, and he has identified them and kept them secure, so trust in him. They will stand before the holy throne in worship. Jesus, through John, is speaking of the complete, secure, redeemed people of God here in this 144,000. And the number does not speak to a limitation of how many are saved, but rather it speaks to the fact that God has the complete number secured and none will fall through his hand. Just as those who bear the mark of the beast will be hardened in their hearts toward God and his people, those who bear the mark of the lamb will be secure in their covenant love for God and his people, even if suffering or death comes. Now, Hans, what about the listing of the tribes, you ask? Well, many commentators have tried to make sense of the specific tribes. Because you see, the tribes listed here do not align with the order given in the Old Testament, nor does it list the same tribes. For example, the tribe of Dan is not mentioned. While the tribe of Levi, that was usually not mentioned because they were not supposed to inherit land, they are mentioned. The half-tribe of Manasseh is mentioned, but not the half-tribe of Ephraim. It's an odd listing, most likely intentional. Unfortunately, attempts at deciphering these changes are largely speculative. No one truly agrees. But two clear pieces do stand out, which commentators agree upon, that I do want to mention. First, notice that rather than being led by Reuben, who was the oldest, this group is led by the tribe of Judah a clear nod to the various prophecies that speak of the Messiah being one that comes as a lion from the tribe of Judah. This group is a group led by Jesus, led by the lion of the tribe of Judah. And secondly, this specific perfect numbering harkens back to the Old Testament in the various places where it lists a census of the people, such as the book of Numbers. There, censuses are taken of all the battle-ready males, that could be recruited for warfare. And they were to purify themselves for battle. And in their census, the full number of Israel could be seen because each male stood for a family. And so again, in this 144,000, in the symbolic imagery of it, we see the complete, secure, redeemed people of God prepared for war. Completely secure in salvation, protected from the complete judgment of God. Now, this truth of what we have seen, the symbolism that we see here in verses one through eight, this truth brings with it attention. This beautiful image of the complete, secure, redeemed people of God should spark both fear and great confidence. Fear because the immediate question should come to each of us Am I part? of this sealed group has my name been written by christ in the lamb's book of life since the foundation of the world every human and especially those that proclaim to be followers of the lamb should wrestle deeply with this question and not take a stance of haughty confidence based on our own merit Instead, when we recognize that all creation, myself and yourself included, deserve the judgment of chapter 6, and yet we see in chapter 7 that Christ has saved and secured his own covenant people, we should recognize that this picture is a picture of perfect grace. Unearned, undeserved salvation. There is no quality, no strength, listed on any part of any one of these sealed 144,000 that should cause them to be sealed. These are chosen to fill the ranks of this new covenant community of God simply because of God's gracious choice. All of the election here, all of the choice is on the part of of God, on the part of the lamb. That's why it's grace. You and I do not deserve it. In fact, our entire lives are contrary to it. You and I, all humanity, deserve eternal punishment in just retribution for our dismissal of God as creator and king. But in his mercy, God reached out and grasped our hearts that were dead in sin, dead in sin, and resurrected us to new life in Christ. And that truth, it should fill us with humility and holy, reverent fear. This truth should drive us to not lean back in our chair of salvation. Lean back on our laurels. Instead, it should drive us to lean into the lamb, to rely on the lamb, to trust in the lamb with all that we are and all that we have. Friend, if you have not done that, God is calling you today to do so. You might say, Hans, I thought you said he already had it figured out. Well, friends, that does not preclude that you are one of those 144,000, so to speak. You are one of the true number, the immense number of God's covenant people. And today is where you meet him in covenant faithfulness, where you are drawn to him. If you have not done that, God is calling you to do so today. Give your life over to him in submission as king and lord and savior be baptized in his name, and enter into covenant with his people. Well, most of us in this room hopefully have done these things. But you still might be asking, rightly so, how do I know if I am part of this complete and secure, redeemed people of God? Well, friend, at first you can know because you will bow your knee to the Lamb in submission to his rule in your life and over your life. And that might be where you need to start today. And we as pastors would love to talk with you if that's the case. You might need to take stock of where in your life you have resisted his authority. And if the Holy Spirit is prompting you in that now, take stock of that and look for ways to repent and give your life over to him. But even more so, the message here in Revelation 7 is that the true Christian is marked and can know that they are marked, Because they are one who endures in their covenant faithfulness and commitment to Christ and his people regardless of what comes, even death itself. Those marked endure in giving their life daily in allegiance to Christ. True Christians endure in covenant faithfulness not out of a stiff-necked toughness that comes from themselves, but out of a complete reliance Upon the Lamb. Friends, we don't gather with God's people. We don't pray or read out of his word or serve or evangelize because these are works that earn us grace. It is because true Christians know no other way to live and they know that nothing else will satisfy. True Christians lean into the Lamb because they know nothing else. Friends, do you have complete reliance upon the lamb? If not, rather than trying to just work harder for Jesus, be better for Jesus, maybe it's time to actually surrender to him. Go to him in prayer and beg him to break you so that you might truly be his. Because when we do that, we also realize that this truth gives Christ's true followers courage. It gave great courage to the first century Christians who knew that they were about to be martyred for the faith, or at least suffer for the faith among a world that is filled with a contrary kingdom. And this is the assurance that Paul counts on when he says to the Ephesian Church, what we heard early, excuse me earlier in our reading. It says, in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Friends, if the Holy Spirit has joined you to Christ and to his people, you are secure in Christ, and you will endure in the very things we're talking about. You will endure in doing good works that keep with repentance. And you will endure until your last breath. You can stand firm no matter the suffering you encounter, no matter what is going on in the chaotic world around us, no matter which political party takes over for the next four years, nationally or here in the state you can stand firm without worldly fear or anxiety because, friends, even physical death has no hold on you. On the cross of Calvary, Christ took your sin upon himself so that you might be forgiven and so that you might be numbered among his new covenant people. He drew you to himself so that you might wage warfare on his behalf, giving your very life to his service And the service of his gospel, just as he did as the lamb. He joined you with his people so that together we might be a kingdom of priests to our God, doing works that keep with repentance, showing the world who he is in his faithful covenant love for his people by our faithful covenant love for one another. This is who we are as Christians. You are a Christian, dear brother or sister, not because you agreed with God, not because you answered his call, not even because you received his gracious gift, but because Christ made you his own, and he numbers you among his covenant people. And because of this, you can stand fast. Let us continue to seek after him as our king, and treasure one another in that covenant faithfulness as we await the fulfillment of his complete work of salvation.